As the year draws to a close, I think it's helpful from time to time to look back on uh, who we've been and on what we've done and, and to learn from that as we pre- prepare for the future. Uh, for the year of 2023, our sermons uh, have focused on a general idea of, of the idea of Christ vision. And with that, what I mean is seeing the world differently because of Christ. Uh, I've, I've never worn glasses. Uh, I've never had to have contacts or anything like that. But I have spoken to those who have. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm going to relate to you their witness. Um, but uh, I have heard that it's really an incredible thing the first time that you put glasses on and you don't realize how perhaps poor your sight had been. And then you put them on, you're like, oh, this is what the world is supposed to look like. I had no idea. And I was like, I thought everything was supposed to be fuzzy or whatever. Um, but, but putting on glasses can change the way you see everything. Putting on contacts can change the way you see everything. I have put on sunglasses before. And uh, when I've worn sunglasses, uh, it's amazing how if you forget you're wearing them, and then you take them off, you're like, oh, it's a lot brighter than I realized outside. You're like, you get used to seeing the world through that lens, and you, you, can, you can grow accustomed to it, and you forget what was really going on out there. Well, as we've talked about Christ's vision, we're talking about a new way of seeing the world. It's possible to become so accustomed to seeing the world outside of Christ that we don't even realize we're seeing it out of focus. And what Jesus does is he changes our vision. He changes the way we see everything around us. And throughout this year, we've tried to focus on things that hopefully Jesus has changed the way that we see. Or that Jesus will, as we we focus more upon him and meditate more upon his word and grow closer to him, continually change the way we see. We've talked about the way that Jesus changes the, the way we see our family and our church family and finances and our ethics and, and a, a whole host of other topics. We've spent a couple of months on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is talking about a new way of being human and a new way of, of treating one another and a new way of seeing and living in this world that he's given us and, and a new way of, of the kingdom and the reign of God on earth as it is in heaven. Like all of these are transformations that take place. We've talked about ways of seeing each other in a new way. We've talked about ways of seeing missions in a new way. We've talked about ways of seeing the work and the vocation and the leadership of this church in vastly new and in different ways through the lens of Jesus. When you put on Christ, it should change things. What I wanted to do to draw uh, the year to a close is to look primarily at the example of a man who is famous for the radical transformation that took place in his life when he came to know Jesus. Uh, He wrote more books of the New Testament than anybody else. We know him as the Apostle Paul. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at three different passages that I hope looking at these passages, uh, you know, in, in order will show some of how this transformation took place and what it looks like. And it's my hope that we will be able to, along with Paul, engage in and be transformed by new vision that we have in Christ. So if you have your Bibles, we are going to do a little bit of a good bit of Bible reading this morning. Uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22, we have a speech from Paul to his countrymen being arrested. Uh, Being arrested, he has gone to the temple. They are accusing him of of having Gentiles in the temple with him. And this arrest is going to be the leading story throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Throughout Acts, he's going to be standing before kings and standing before different uh, leaders, traveling different places as a prisoner until the book of Acts ends with him as a uh, prisoner in Rome. 
And so this right here is where the arrest happens. And this is his first speech, really, where he defends himself in this big arrest that happens in Jerusalem. He's speaking to his countrymen, and he's going to tell the story. And there's other passages you can read where he tells this same story, but he's going to tell the story of his, uh, the Damascus experience, where he was traveling, he had been gone for the purpose of persecuting and arresting Christians, and then he meets Jesus on the way. He literally becomes blind and then regains his sight. And as he regains his sight, everything is different. As he regains his sight, he sees the world in a whole new way. And it's because of the meeting he had with Jesus, he now is seeing the world through what we've been calling Christ vision. He's going to look at things differently. And even just in this chapter alone, you'll see how his views about Jesus, he now sees Jesus differently. His views towards uh, the Christians, he now sees Christians differently. His views towards his enemies, he now sees enemies quite differently. His views towards the law, he now is going to read and see the law quite differently. Like in, in so many areas and an aspect, his, his life, he now sees his life, his purpose, his mission on earth differently. Gentiles, he's now going to see Gentiles differently than he ever used to before. All of these areas of his life are transformed because of the interaction that he has with Christ and because he comes to know Christ. And so we're going to listen from Paul's own words uh, what he says uh, happened to him. This is Acts chapter 22, and we're going to begin in verse 1. His speech begins. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, in that which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet, and he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, and brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are all here today, I persecuted the way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. All right, so as he begins, he begins with his childhood, his ancestry. He's a Jew. He was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but he actually grew up in Jerusalem. And he was educated under a guy named Gamaliel, who's a famous Jewish rabbi. We actually meet him earlier in the book of Acts. And one of the things that's fascinating about this is Gamaliel encouraged the, the, uh, his countrymen not to physically harm, kill, or persecute the church or the way. He said, look, if it's from God, then we don't want to fight against God, and it'll last, and you know, we, don't, we don't want to find ourselves in opposition to him. But if it's not from God, which none of you think that it is, then just give it a minute, and it'll fizzle out and die. That's what happens to these type of movements. They rise up, they fall. They go up, they die. You know, that's, that's, just, that's what movements do. And he gives a couple of examples of other ones that they've already seen do this. And so that was his response. Paul, even though educated by Gamaliel, even though that was his teacher and his rabbi, Paul takes a different route. He goes with the Jewish tradition of zeal, which he mentions there in verse 3, being zealous for God, just as you are all here today, I persecuted the way. And I, uh, to the death, binding and putting both men and women in prison. Paul, as he considered people who were enemies of his faith, he saw them as heretics, he saw them as dangerous. He saw them as people who needed to be stopped by whatever means necessary. He considered his faithfulness to God and his zeal before the Lord to be best demonstrated in harming, imprisoning, and even putting to death his enemies. That's, a, that's an important thing to keep in mind for the way that Paul views his enemies. Because as we talk about Christ's vision, when he becomes an apostle, 
he does not lose all of his enemies. He still has enemies. He still has people that he thinks are wrong, that are incorrect, that are false teachers. He thinks that there are people who are leading others astray. And yet, you know what's amazing? You never in the New Testament see Paul advocate beating, imprisoning, or stoning them. He doesn't advocate the way of, of zealous violence for the truth anymore. One of the things that seems to have been radically transformed in Paul, as you continue to read it from this point forward, is the way that he deals with his religious enemies. He used to think violence was on the table for how to deal with them. After meeting Jesus, it is knocked aside. He is not going to use that anymore. He now is someone who, as we'll read some of the other passages, talks about blessing even those who persecute you and, and doing good to those who mistreat you. He's someone who his view of his enemies, his view of, of ethics and violence has been transformed by his encounter with Christ. But we keep reading in verse 5. He says, As also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. For from them I received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring as many as those who were, uh, of those who were there to Jerusalem to be imprisoned and punished. But it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered and said, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. Now what's fascinating about that, there's a bunch of things, but one thing in particular that I wanted to note is that Paul has not done anything to physically, literally Jesus, as we would think of him. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, ascended to, to, the, to the throne of God above. And yet, when Jesus meets Paul, he says, why are you persecuting me? And this will be an important point that will come up in some of Paul's letters throughout, that the church itself is the body of Christ. So, what that means is to harm the church is actually to harm the body of Christ. Jesus may have ascended to the Father, but his body is still on earth in some very real ways. And the way that you treat the church is the way that you actually treat Christ. So when he's persecuting the church, Jesus can say, you're persecuting me. Like you're actually harming me by the way that you treat them. And I think that has a profound impact on the way that Paul ends up viewing the church, ends up viewing Christ. Uh, he sees that the way you treat one another is directly related, in, in, in fact, is the way that you treat Christ. So if you love Christ, you should love one another. If you want to honor and treat Christ well, you treat one another well. If you persecute, slander, harm one another then that's the very way that you're treating Christ himself. And so Jesus, by telling Paul, you're persecuting me, I think is going to have a, a transformative shift in the way that Paul views and sees the church itself and the way that you treat one another. But we keep reading. In uh, verse 9, he says, And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go into Damascus, and there it will be told uh, of all that has been appointed for you to do. And so Paul is now receiving directions from the Lord. 
I think it helps that the encounter he's having with the Lord, with Jesus of Nazarene, is the encounter with the risen, glorified Jesus. This isn't just another Christian that he met along the way. Jesus has been executed. He has been crucified. He has been buried. He has been raised. And now Paul, like hundreds of others, has been able to actually see him. I don't think without the appearance of the resurrection of Jesus, I don't think you get the transformation in Paul that, uh, that you have from this point forward. It was his encounter with the risen Christ that radically transformed him. It was his encounter and his now belief in Jesus as risen from the dead that proved to him that the life and the way and the message of Jesus that he gave during his life was actually something that was true and divine and something that we should grab onto and live into ourselves. So the resurrection of Jesus and now believing in the resurrection is going to have a transformative way on, on his view of, of eschatology, like the end of times, of the resurrection itself. Like as he writes, he'll try to explain and inform uh, about the resurrection two early Christian audiences in 1 Corinthians 15 and in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and in quite a few other places, he'll describe events that will take place during the resurrection. And one of the things that he often does is he says, well, we know something about the resurrection because it already started with Jesus. He was the first one who was raised. And so by looking at Jesus as the first fruits of the resurrection, we can learn more about the harvest that is to come. And so his view of eternal life his view of resurrection from the dead was transformed by this encounter with Jesus, which is, I think, the primary reason he now believes that what Jesus says is true and that Jesus is, in fact, the Lord. Jesus is the one to whom we owe our lives and, uh, and the one to whom we uh, ought to give our obedience. But then he continues on in verse 11. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand to those who were with me and came to Damascus. Seeing the bright light of Jesus blinded him. So now he's being led by the hand. He has lost his sight. The way that he previously saw the world is no more. It's gone. That's darkness. He is now blind and he's being led by the hand. Verse 12, a certain man, uh, a certain Ananias a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. He came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that time I looked at him and he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one uh, and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men and of what you have seen and heard. And so here we have Paul, he had been in darkness, but now he meets Ananias, he's able to see anew. I think that going having sight, going blind, and having new sight is a very important image for our theme for the year, but also for the book of Acts and for understanding what's taking place with Paul here. You're supposed to see a radically, a radically trans transitioned way of viewing the whole world. Uh, I don't think before he met Christ, he realized how out of focus everything was. But once he put on those glasses for the first time, everything came clearly into view. That's the story we're getting right here. We're getting the story of someone whose view had been out of focus. He went out, he persecuted, he harmed, he imprisoned, he killed. Like those were the things that he did out of his faith for God. Then he meets Jesus and all of that is going to be changed. He sees the world differently now. 
And he's led by Ananias and he's told what his mission is going to be in this world, that he will, in verse 15, be a witness for Jesus to all men of what you have seen and heard. So he's supposed to take what he has seen and heard in Jesus and what he's going to hear here to this day and what he'll be hearing for the next couple of years. And he's going to use that to go out and bring a message to others. Then verse 16, now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. It's like you've gone blind, now you have sight. And now that you can see, the first thing you need to do is have those sins of your past, of that darkness that you've been in, of that out-of-focus way of viewing the world, washed away. And in so doing, you'll call on Jesus to be the Lord of your life. And in so doing, he will become your master and Lord, and you will live for him from this point forward. So Paul does that, verse 17 And it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw Jesus, I saw him standing, uh, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I was also standing by, approving, and watching out uh, for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And so here we have Paul, he's, he's talking with Jesus again, he's seeing him in this trance, and he's being told to go because you're going to be the persecuted now. By this change of, of vision, this change of the world, Paul has gone from persecutor to persecuted, and Jesus is calling him to go out and to go you know, get away from the, from the persecuted. You're going to have another mission. And Paul's saying, you know, I... And you wonder how much this stayed with him throughout his life. He's already bringing it up like the first thing after becoming a Christian. And as you read his letters, he brings it up time and time again that he himself was one who not only opposed men, but opposed Christ, doing so violently, imprisoning, watching the coats of those who were stoning Stephen. Like he's bringing up and thinking and recalling specific instances of times that he has actively worked against the cause of Christ and actively works to harm people. That's not the type of thing that you easily just forget and move on from. And so he's telling these things even to Jesus, admitting and confessing his faults right here. And Jesus does not hold those things against him, which is pretty incredible. Jesus doesn't then go on to talk about how awful he was and how uh, he'll never be able to make things up and all that. No, instead what Jesus does is he says, if you've If you have burned bridges in that area of ministry, I'll send you to a new area of ministry. You'll go to the Gentiles, where the Gentiles don't know all of that history that you have, and the Gentiles uh, don't have those experiences with you, and so now you need to go to them. Now, what that what that does is it opens up the door to all kinds of controversy in the life of Paul. Like as you keep reading, remember he's being arrested right now because they're saying he brought Gentiles to, uh, to the temple, which he didn't actually do, but they're saying he did. And if you read through what makes the Jews in Jerusalem so angry at Paul and why he's being arrested, it's because of this mission to the Gentiles. In fact, right after he mentions this mission to the Gentiles, in verse 22, It says, they listened to him up to this statement. So it's like, as soon as he mentions the Gentiles, they want to put a stop to this. That's not what they want to hear anymore. Uh, Paul is going to advocate the radical idea that 
all people, regardless of which nation or race or, uh, or, uh, or, or who you are, whether you're slave or free, male and female, Jew and Gentile, that all are one and all are equal in Christ. And that the very kingdom of God and the God of Israel is actually the God of all men, the creator of all. All who are created in his likeness and image are one in his family. And that's the gospel message that he's going to be bringing. That is not the way that he viewed things before. And that is such a controversial idea that his countrymen, even those in the church, will very often find fault with him and accuse him because of it. Jesus changed everything for Paul. Like, he changed everything. He changed the way that Paul viewed his mission in this world. He changed the way he viewed the church. He changes the way he views God and Christ and, and his mission. and per Like, he changed everything. He changed the way that he viewed the cross. And I think that is going to underlie so much of this. Because one of the reasons that it's easy to reject Jesus, especially as a first century Jew, is, is because he was crucified. One of the easy ways to reject Jesus if you're a first century Gentile is because he was crucified. If you're trying to say that someone is the Lord of all, if you're trying to demonstrate someone's greatness, that they're worthy of worship, the last thing you'd want to say is that they suffered a shameful, agonizing death, naked and humiliated on a cross like a common thief and criminal. Like, what the cross meant, like, directly what it meant was failure. You tried something and you failed and Rome put a stop to it. Rome used crosses similar to we, the way we use billboards. They were advertisements. They were advertisements for the might of Rome. What often happened to bodies on the cross is they were not taken down because of preparation for Passover like happened with Jesus. They were just left on there to rot and to get mingled and to uh, smell. They, would line, they, they lined the Appian Way with, uh, with crosses, like 3,000 of them, after the failed insurrection of, um, of uh, guy whose name Spartacus. Uh, they lined the Appian Way as a way of reminding everyone who traveled on that lengthy road that every cross you see is an example of what it means to stand against Rome. It's an example of a failure. So if you were to say, like, the cross, that's where Jesus went, you have immediately made your, le your sermon a whole lot harder to believe. No one ever, like, if you read the Old Testament, you look at uh, our writings outside the Bible about what Jews expected for their Messiah, there's differences about what they kind of expected him to be. And one thing you don't see, though, is no one expects him to be crucified at the hand of the Romans. If that happened, which by the way, that did happen to a lot of people, and even people who like tried to start movements. You remember Gamaliel at the very beginning of this lesson, I mentioned him, and he said, look, wait and see. If it rises up and then fizzles out, then, then it must not be from God. That's usually what happened, and a really good way for Rome to make sure that happened was the cross. They would nail people to a cross, publicly demonstrate their failure, make a spectacle out of them. People would be embarrassed, ashamed, scared, and they would walk away and they would leave that person alone, never listening to their message again. When they nailed Jesus to the cross, something different happened. And instead of the cross changing the way that we view Jesus, we now see him as a failure, it actually changed the way that early Christians saw the cross. The cross is now the very power and wisdom of God. That's a radically new idea, and it's an idea that Paul now has that comes from Jesus. Second passage I wanted to read, and we won't spend as much time on it, is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is going to talk about this 
new way of seeing the cross and how the cross actually becomes the power of God demonstrated on earth. The cross actually becomes the wisdom of God. The cross, which would be seen as a stumbling block and as foolishness and as failure, is now the very power and wisdom of God transformed on earth. So when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll start in verse 18. Paul writes, For the word of the cross, the word of the cross meaning like the message of the cross, when he has to go and tell people about the cross, it is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's, that makes your message hard when you see it as the power of God, and so you tell it to people, and everyone you tell it to immediately hears it as absolute foolishness. Uh, it's hard to, get, to convince people to give in to the foolishness. It's hard to convince people that the cross, which has always been a terrifying symbol of agonizing death and humiliation and failure, is now how you gain the very victory of God. He says in verse 19, For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Those who think they're so wise, God is going to flip their whole view of wisdom on its head. So verse 20, so where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached, to save those who believe it. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, it's a stumbling block. And to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those of us who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. As Paul tries to flip on its head the way people have viewed the cross, he does so by demonstrating that this message that we've preached, which to Jews is a stumbling block, I mean, it's going to be hard for them to think that their Messiah was the one who was cursed and nailed to a tree. That, that goes against every predisposition to Jewish belief that there is. And to the Gentiles, to think, yeah, the one that the Romans crucified alongside other criminals, just like a common thief— He's the one who's actually the Lord and creator of the cosmos, the source of all divine wisdom. That's foolishness. I say, absolutely, no, it's not. Like, that, that's, that is not where wisdom comes from and where power comes from. And yet, to those who are being saved, to those who have put on those glasses that now see the world through Christ, that's where you find wisdom. And that's where you find the power of God. And that was demonstrated through the resurrection, and as Paul will go on to say, uh, through the Holy Spirit. Th those are ways that... that God has testified to the truth of Jesus being the one uh, that we ought to give our lives to, even though he was the one who was crucified. But one thing that the crucifixion of Jesus did is it transformed the way that we come to understand love. Um, while many have seen the cross as a symbol of foolishness or failure, there's a reason that it becomes such a powerful symbol for Christians. There's a reason that the cross becomes such a powerful emblem for understanding what matters so much to the heart of our faith. And it's because the cross becomes the picture of what love is. In fact, you know, if you were to look at, uh, if you're just to take our word love, we all like the word love and we all think the word love can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people and it's not always helpful. We use the word very flippantly. 
I think if you want to go through the New Testament and find a concrete way of thinking about love, what you do is you look to the cross. Because over and over again, when the Bible wants to describe what love is, it takes us back to the gift of Jesus giving himself for mankind. When husbands are told to love their wives, what image does Paul use? As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He uses the death of Jesus on the cross as the picture of what love for a husband and a wife is supposed to be. When he tells the church to love one another, he says, walk in love. And he tells them to do this imitating Jesus who gave himself for us as a fragrant aroma to God, well-pleasing to him. It's like he goes to the offering of Christ on the cross. When he tells Christians to love one another, it's because Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. We love because he first loved us, and that's demonstrated through the cross of Christ. So the cross becomes the symbol of what love is for followers of Jesus. And so when Paul begins to describe how Christians ought to treat one another, he does so with this idea of a transformed view of the cross. When he puts those Jesus glasses on, he now sees the cross differently. And the third passage I want to read is Romans chapter 12, where this Paul, this Paul who persecuted, stood at the feet of those who stoned Stephen, wanted his enemies killed, is now going to see the cross not as a tool to use against his enemies, but as something upon which he can, he can be nailed for the sake of his enemies. Something that in imitation of Jesus, he can carry his cross daily in the way that he treats one another. He can be crucified with Christ so that it is no longer he who lives, but Christ who lives within him. And that should be the message that we can all say. I have been crucified with Christ so that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And if we go through that, we'll be able to see the world differently. We'll see our enemies differently. I want to conclude by reading Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. And as we do so, I want, I want us to see how the idea of the cross, the idea of the cross which is selfless, sacrificial, and giving love, active love, which sacrifices what's best for ourselves for the sake of what's best for one another, what sacrifices what's best for me for what is most meaningful to you. That's what the cross is calling us to do because that's what Jesus did. Like Jesus on the cross, he did not seek his own, but he sought the betterment of everyone else. And as people of the cross, that's who we're called to be. As people who now view the world through the lens of the cross, those glasses should be cross-shaped. They should be cruciform because we now see the cross in all that we do. In Romans chapter 12, verses 9, he describes how to live the message of the cross, how to treat one another in the shape of the cross, and how to embody what the cross means. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, a poor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Notice the, Paul, the persecutor Paul saying in verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That idea of blessing those who persecute you, that comes from the example of Jesus on the cross, who instead of cursing his enemies, prayed instead, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. His love led him to the cross 
it embodied who he was on the cross and ultimately it conquered the cross. He goes on to say in verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. That idea of associate with the lowly, connecting that up above with the, the idea where he says uh, to, uh, to give honor or, or give preference to one another in honor, he's, that's really important in the context of an honor and shame society where your goal was always to receive honor and one of the ways that your honor would be harmed would be by associating with those who were lowly and at the bottom. Paul is flipping ideas of honor and shame upside down by saying you give honor to others and you associate with the lowly. That's, what, that's how the cross transforms you to where you no longer see yourself. I mean, if the Lord of the universe is the one who dies on a cross, then me, who's not the Lord of the universe, can certainly be the one who associates with someone who might in society's estimation, be of more humble circumstance than I. Like, we are called to be those people who have been inverted by the message of the cross. In verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. So in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. That language uh, comes from the book of Proverbs, the burning coals language. And there's a lot of discussion about what exactly that means. I think at the heart of it, uh, no matter what image it's drawing on, whether historically or otherwise, at the heart of it, it's talking about when your cruelty is met by the kindness of another, it can bring about the type of shame that leads to repentance. It can bring about the type of shame that can actually cause you to see another person in a new way and in a new light. And that's what Paul is telling us to do. It's like, if you receive cruelty from someone, you shouldn't have your vision, without the Christ glasses on, you immediately say, okay, so this person deserves cruelty back. But with Christ glasses on, you still see this person as someone created and loved by God who instead of responding to cruelty with cruelty, you try to overcome their cruelty in a new way. And the, the final verse in verse 21, where he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, reminds us that you don't put out a fire by shooting more fire at it. You don't defeat an enemy by acting like him. If you want to overcome cruelty and hatred in enemies, you overcome them with love and kindness and the imitation of Jesus himself. That's what will actually make more of a change in this world than anything else. And that only comes when you begin to see the world through cross-shaped glasses, when you begin to see the world through Christ. Paul, at one point in his life, if he had a religious enemy, would want them stoned, killed, or imprisoned. At this point, he's saying, love them, bless them, overcome their cruelty with good, and in so doing, you will honor the Jesus who died for you. As we conclude this year, and as we think of a new way of seeing the world, let's be sure and see the world through Jesus, through the cross of Christ, and through the victory that he gives because of it. If there's anyone here who would like to be crucified with Christ, name him as Lord of your life, have your sins washed away in baptism, and 
be raised up with him to new, live a new life. What a great way to conclude and to begin another year making that decision. If you need the prayers or help of the church, you can talk to some of our elders in the back. Uh, you can come forward and sit on the front row, but please do so while we stand and as we sing.